0: Hello and welcome to the 14th episode of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture and I'll select a film from the more art classic side of cinema with a (laughs) connection to it. I am your want-to-hear-the-most-annoying-sound-in-the-world host, Howard Kasner. <laughs> For my listeners, please like, follow, or comment on the podcast. I'd love to know what you think. Today, my guest is Hollywood hyphenate Alan Richson, actor, writer, director, producer, who has chosen the Farrelly Brothers' first feature film, The Farce, Dumb and Dumber, while I, in turn, have chosen the Elizabeth Scott Dan film. <laughs> film noir cult classic Too Late for Tears, both films about people who unexpectedly find themselves in possession of a bag of money. To begin, Alan, why don't you tell us something about yourself?
1: I've been in the business for a little over a decade, you know, started out acting. Yeah, I didn't grow up in a family that was artistic, very blue collar. You know, my dad was in the military, moved around a lot. So I don't have the vast repertoire that you do. So when we talked about coming on to do this, I almost jokingly said, I only know Dumb and Dumber, which is not a lie. So I just think it's funny. I have always loved working with you and your assessments of scripts that I hand you to take a look at. Always so complex and, and rich. I don't have that, so I love being able to rely on you and the community that that enjoys these kind of movies. Yes, I grew up on Goonies and Stand By Me and The Sandlot, Flight of the Navigator. I just grew up on fun commercial family adventures, so that's really what I'm drawn to.
0: You and most of my friends, actually.
1: Yeah, I like, you know, this kind of entertainment is more escapism into magic. I don't have a lot of experience with cult classics like Too Late for Tears, but I did really thoroughly enjoy watching it. I found it quite shocking. I can't wait to hear your take on it. Dumb and Dumber is an easy go-to for me. The Grinch was my alternative if you didn't find Dumb and Dumber appealing. You know, I'm a classic artist uh, in every sense.
0: Great. Well, with that, why don't we get to your choice, Dumb and Dumber? And I will begin with providing some information about the film.
1: I almost feel like I hear a little disdain in the way that you say Dumb and Dumber like you despise do you despise this piece of magic this no, amazing not, not at this- all
0: I think it's just the way I talk but I by no means believe me despise this movie uh, in kidding. fact I really like the Farrelly Brothers films and we're going to get into that Dumb and Dumber was released in 1994. The director was Peter Farrelly. The writer was Peter Farrelly and his brother Bobby Farrelly, along with Bennett Yellen. It stars Jim Carrey, Jeff Daniels, Lauren Hawley, Karen Duffy, Mike Garr, Charles Rocket, and Terry Garr. The basic premise revolves around best friends Lloyd Christmas and Harry Dunn, not the brightest bulbs on the holiday tree. When they accidentally intercept a briefcase of money they don't know is meant as ransom. With that, they travel cross-country to return the briefcase to its owner, a woman Lloyd has fallen madly in love with so to begin you did talk about this a little bit but why did you choose this film
1: i think this is one that i can easily talk about because i've watched it 200 million times i don't know what it is jim carrey films for me growing up it was my kind of entertainment so you know i would dress up as ace ventura three four halloweens in a row and go to school like that i had like a jim carrey poster above my bed that was like six feet tall and I'd go to bed and like, good night jim he was my hero growing up so anytime one of his movies came out i just devoured it and enjoyed it and then i would do every line i'd be behave like his characters. It was my outlet as a kid, my naive use I also think, to be completely frank, I think it's a brilliant piece of work. The writing is exceptional. The twists and turns and uh, the coincidences that they use, they feel effortless, but they're really brilliant, the way that they propel the story forward. So I think it's really good. I also think that there's a lot to appreciate in the performances. Being an actor, I try not to just look at projects through the lens of my experience, but it's inevitable. I talk to makeup artists and they they Love or hate a movie, whether or not the makeup was oh. up to par. You did like Jurassic Park, like no, the makeup on Dara was terrible. Taro- you know, it's like what? Like that's not how you judge a movie. So I try not to look at a movie through the lens strictly of maybe like an, an actor. I think the performances are exceptional. It's excellent comedy. I think of the moment with Lloyd standing at the window in his apartment, ready to give up on life, saying he wants more, and he turns around, teary-eyed, and delivers this beautiful moment to Harry. And it's real. It's exceptionally real. It's, you could have been watching a drama, and it would. Would have been just as exceptional so i think moments like that that round a film that's based like you said a forest it's as ridiculous as this premise is this kind of heightened situational comedy it's still excellently done so i, I love it i think it's worth talking about
0: so I guess it's safe to say you think it holds up after all this time.
1: I think that's very Absolutely. clear. Absolutely. It was new for you, right? You hadn't right. watched it. This was so, the very
0: first time I've ever seen it. I can't really say why I've never watched it before because I have watched other Farrelly Brothers comedy and enjoyed them very much. I, I think th- it's
1: astounding. I can't believe that you have seen hundreds of millions of movies. I mean, you reference things when we talk about film. Nobody else knows it exists. Like, you're the Wikipedia of film. How have you never watched Dumb and Dumber. Well, I think if you talk to anybody
0: who are really into films, they're going to come across some films where you're going to go, how have you never seen this? And they can't really explain why. It's just one of those things that happen. And of course, the more films you see, the more likely it is that there's going to be one or two or three or four or five that for somehow you just never got around to. I think, to be honest, I thought it would probably be too Dumb and Dumber to watch. And then over the years, I would see scenes from it. And we'll get into our favorite scenes but one of the scenes that I would watch that actually made me want to watch the film is the absolute classic scene, the bathroom scene. Right. Where right. he, and by the way, don't worry about spoiling it or any uh, spoiling the movie uh-huh. or anything. We can do spoilers. When he goes to use the bathroom and then the host says, oh, you can't use the toilet because it's broken. That is so vulgar and dumb and brilliant. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Classic body humor. And Jeff Daniels tells a story about this where he was golfing with Clint Eastwood and Clint Eastwood said to him, you know, I saw Dumb and Dumber. And Jeff Daniels was ready to hear him say that it was a really dumb, it was really stupid movie. Why did you do it? Instead, Clint Eastwood says, You know, that bathroom thing happened to me when I was on a date once. Oh, no. (laughs) It's amazing. Wow. Just somehow along the way, even though I would see scenes from it and I liked other Farrelly Brothers movies, for whatever reason, I just never got around to see it. Basically, when you said Dumb and Dumber, I said, well, I haven't seen Dumb and Dumber. I think that would make a good choice for this podcast because finally now I have to see it. Right, right. And I suppose overall, my feeling on it is that I enjoyed so much of it and I liked a lot of it. And I'll get into other things I like about it i guess i do find it it is their first film i think it does feel like their first film the comedy is hit and miss with their next film kingpin they make a great step forward and kingpin is much more solid film with better timing and then of course there's something about mary which is brilliant and my favorite is stuck on you but i do enjoy dumb and dumber it's a movie that does absolutely nothing but does it very, very well. <laughs> and it. what else are some of your favorite scenes?
1: Prior to their departure, you know, heading into act two essentially with them deciding to take the briefcase up to Aspen. They're down to their last penny and Lloyd wants to go get some essentials. And Harry's telling them like not to blow the last of their cash. Harry, what do I look like? Yes. cut to him immediately with like a massive five-foot cowboy hat on and little, a little ping pong paddle a box of little twirlers or whatever those are called little pinwheels brilliant comedy brilliant editing and the imagery that they decided on it could have been anything but it was just so perfectly them there's and, and, also
0: another interesting little joke there that doesn't really come across as a joke but jeff daniels tells him only get the essentials and then when he gets back and he doesn't have anything he says you didn't get the liquor yeah. so liquor was the essentials it wasn't right. food it wasn't anything like that
1: that exactly yeah good call yeah so I think that's brilliant and then I loved Lloyd's the seriousness of his tone you know the offense that he took in the van when Harry's like Petey you sold a dead bird to a blind kid? Harry, I took care of it. You watch that scene and he's so genuinely offended that partner would think that he couldn't handle this. And then you cut to this bird with a poorly duct taped head on the body. I can't imagine what my reaction would have been had I received this script and been reading it for the first time. The experience for me reading scripts and then seeing them on the screen, generally for me, the experience is much more visceral reading a script. And my reaction to it is much more visceral in, in either directions. I mean, I think if I hadn't have seen this and I'd be reading the script, I can only imagine that. Would be dynamite a joke like that
0: well it, it builds up to an even better joke when they have the news program and you see the kid stroking the bird right, right. <laughs> i guess roger ebert just couldn't stop laughing right when he saw that scene it's so offensive but it's just so funny hysterically funny
1: i'm more of a physical humorist i played a character thad castle on a show blue mountain state for a while and i was begging for more physical comedy all the time it was about making this guy physically uncomfortable and disturbing the world around him and it seemed to work I'm very much drawn to that kind of humor. It's very childish in a way, but in a good way. I perform that way at home when I'm joking around with my kids, and it's like physical comedy kills every time, you know? So... When I watch these films, I tend to enjoy those moments the most. Another one at the airport, when Lloyd drops off this woman that he's now enamored with, a little bit first sight, she wants nothing to do with him, and he's watching her leave as he pulls away in the limo, she's inside the airport, and he rear-ends a car and the airbags go off, and he gets stuck in the airbag, but then he sees that she accidentally drops her briefcase, that was the drop, the handoff for, for whatever she was getting into, he sees this and has to fight his way out of an airbag to go get it. Like I know it's not classy storytelling, but it's just enjoyable.
0: If you're looking for classy storytelling, you certainly don't go to Dumb and Dumber, and you probably don't go to uh, Early Brothers. You go because uh, they're incredibly silly and over-the-top and, and ridiculous. Those are great scenes. I also love the scene in the restaurant where Lloyd Christmas pulls the heart out of the chef. Yes. I love the part where Mike Starr, who is Joe Metalino, punches the guy out through the telephone booth. Right. I especially love scenes like that. The more visual, the more slapsticky.
1: Right. And again, I think what's so brilliant about it is the casting. I mean, the casting choices are beautiful. I've had the opportunity to be on the other side of that process trying to find the right person for the part and it seems like it could be considered an inconsequential role. This is just oh it's just a, a guy that's asking somebody to get off the phone real quick. But it's difficult sometimes to find the right person for that and sometimes you'll you'll look through 50 people, great actors, actresses and you see what they did with that character asking him to get off the phone, get off the phone. Such a specific point of view for that character. He's and, a very and,
0: established and, stand-up comedian. I think he's the guy who has, as one of his catchphrases is, I'm living dangerously, I run with scissors.
1: (laughs) That's perfect. But that kind of specificity in in those details that I think maybe a a lesser team would overlook or put less emphasis in, I think helps highlight the brilliance of these guys. Yes,
0: I think the acting and the casting was very important. What do you think of the pairing of Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels?
1: I think it's good. It's, It's one of those things that kind of grew on me. You know, I watch it now and I think it's great. To me, my instinct watching it when I was a kid was that there really was nobody as good as Jim. And anybody that you kind of pair with him is going to be not as good at that kind of comedy. There was a seriousness behind the eyes to Jeff that I felt like as a kid, this is a smart, grounded, non-comedic guy acting dumb. So I just favored Jim's work a little more, but I watch it now and I understand how that rather grounded the film. It contrasted Jim sort of leading the way
0: that's one of the reasons why jeff daniels got the role only jim carrey and jeff daniels wanted jeff daniels nobody else wanted daniels they wanted a comedian daniels was known as a dramatic actor jim carrey wanted someone who could ground the comedy in contrast to him jim carrey got seven million dollars and the reason why he got so much money was ace ventura opened that same year and was such a big hit that all of a sudden jim carrey could ask for seven million dollars which was like a third of the budget as a whole but for jeff daniels they only all offered him $50,000 and Whoa. they only offered him $50,000 because they thought he will never do this for 50000 He will turn it down. But Jeff Daniels wanted so much to expand what he could do as an actor. He wanted to do something to make people see him as not just dramatic actor that he took it, but his agents and his managers told him, told him don't do this. It will ruin your career. And I think even the night before shooting, his agents came to him and said, look, we can still get you out of this. No way. Jeff Daniels just really wanted to do this silly, stupid movie to show that he was more than a dramatic actor. Wow. And little Boy, of, a little bit of trivia there is in the scene where they set up sea bass, where they get him to pay for the kick his uh, ass sea bass. <laughs> yeah, to pay for the diner for their lunch at the diner. Right. right. That is actually something that Jeff Daniels does in a previous movie called Something Wild. Oh,
1: wow, okay.
0: Where he sets up Ray Liotta to pay for his and Melanie Griffith's lunch so that they can get away from Ray Liotta.
1: That's amazing.
0: And this was a great year for Jim Carrey because he had three number one movies in a row. It was Ace Ventura. It was... Oh, The Mask was the one that came after this one.
1: Yeah, he was a rock star. He's phenomenal. I think he's always been underrated. He's gotten paid well well for what he does.
0: He's actually a very good dramatic actor as well, and I tend to gravitate more to those films, but even before he does this, he does a dramatic role in a made-for-TV movie called Doing Time on Maple Drive, where he plays an alcoholic brother, and he's very good. And then he goes to do things like The Man on the Moon and I Love You, Philip J. Morris, and he's actually a very, very good actor. He's sort of like Eddie Murphy and Adam Sandler, where he tends to try to balance out a movie that's a bit more serious and a Bit more dramatic, and then these outrageous, over the top, ridiculous comedies,
1: right? Yeah. And he can, he can. Yeah,
0: I do think that sometimes, yes, he has not really gotten the notice he's deserved. So these actors or comedians who go back and forth, back and forth, often have a hard time getting as much respect.
1: And it's also worth noting, to your point about Jeff, Jeff Daniels has not suffered because of this film.
0: No, his career went about it as well as it would have, whether he made the film or not. And he's always sought after, and he's always in demand. right. So you enjoy the Farrelly brothers as a whole?
1: I do, yeah, I do. You mentioned something about Mary, and that would be one comparison that I would make if asked about Dumb and Dumber. Unfair because it's in the same family, but yeah, I I, I like their stuff. I think it's excellent.
0: I think of late, Peter Farrelly directed Green Book, a totally different movie than anything like he's ever done before. So they're still going strong. I like Stuck on You very much about the joined twins. I think that has so much heart and feeling in it. A little unsurprising for the kind of comedy that the Farrelly brothers does while still retaining that sort of ridiculous and over-the-top approach to comedy. would like to make a shout out for the soundtrack. I actually heard the soundtrack before I saw the movie. Oh, interesting. And the soundtrack, the songs that play in the background are wonderful. I think they made a great, great choice in the music.
1: Yeah, it's perfect. Even the opening song, the opening track. I don't know if you'd think it's a funny song. It's such an effervescent song that it buoys that opening really well. I mean, who would have heard that song and said like, yeah, let's open a movie this way. I think they did a great job.
0: What is your favorite Jim Carrey performance? That's
1: a great question. Oh, I don't know. I mean, there's a side of me that likes the dramatic stuff. But I just think he's in his element when he's doing comedies. And I think that probably Ace Ventura is over the top of that is you go to Jim for those kind of roles and he does them better than anybody so.
0: In closing out I'll give a bit more information about the film. It cost 17 million to make but it made 247 million at the box office. Uh, Jim Carrey's chipped tooth is real. He chipped it when he was young and normally he caps his teeth. In the hotel, when he goes by the newspaper on the wall and says something like, oh my God, we've landed on the moon, that was improvised on the spur of the moment. Also, the scene where he says, do you want to hear the most annoying sound in the world, was also improvised. (laughs) And someone says, you can tell by Jeff Daniels' reaction that it was improvised, and that wasn't. The hotel that they used in Colorado was the same one that inspired The Shining. The names of Harry Dunn and Lloyd Christmas were based on Harold Lloyd, who was a major silent film comedian. Oh, wow. In closing, do you have anything else you might want to add? Uh, if you haven't
1: seen this movie and you're learning about it for the first time, whatever you have to do, you have to quit your job. If you have to sell something to make time for it, whatever has to happen for you to free up your life, your life will be better having seen this movie. And I think
0: it's definitely a movie that you can go to when, oh, I'm not feeling particularly happy today. or Right. Oh, I'm gonna, you know, watch Dumber Dumber and you might feel better.
1: Right, exactly. Especially this climate, this day and age. We're in the apocalypse. Yes.
0: Everybody needs to see the Dumber Dumber. <laughs> <laughs> the world is coming to an end. You might as well watch Dumb and Dumber. Have you seen any of the other Dumb and Dummers? Have you seen Dumber and Dumber and Dumb and Dumber 2?
1: I unfortunately and I'm friends with some of the people that, you know, in that do I couldn't do it. I had to turn it off. It's hard to do the kind of comedy that they do. It's,
0: it's very difficult. It's, it's everybody a, it's thinks smarter it's smarter than
1: Yeah. It's smarter and more subtle and nuanced than people think. Right.
0: So with that, let's go to my choice, which is Too Late for Tears. I will begin by providing some information about the film. Too Late for Tears was released in 1949. It's directed by Byron Haskin, written by Roy Huggins. It stars Elizabeth Scott, Don DeFore, Dan Duryea, Arthur Kennedy, Christine Miller, and Barry Keller. Basic premise revolves around a husband and wife who stop along a lonely road in the Hollywood Hills to have a fight. A car races by and throws a suitcase in their back seat filled with sixty thousand dollars. The wife convinces her husband not to turn the money into the police, and in fact, there's almost nothing she will do to
1: keep the money.
0: So when did you first see the film?
1: Yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who's digging up cult classics from the 40s on YouTube or wherever we find these things? I mean, I don't know. How else would I find? This thing. If not for your your lexicon.
0: And what did you think of it?
1: I was stunned. I, I got to be honest. I was taken aback. As soon as she shot her husband in a little boat on a pond, I was like, this is dark. Imagine this being remade. Like if we were to remake this today, it's very gone girl. This is some sinister behavior, you know, on the part of this woman. I did a calculation of the value of money then versus what it would be. And I think it would be napkin math, some, somewhere around $2 million. So imagine somebody tosses $2 bucks in your back seat while you're driving and it's sort of I can see the allure of buying yourself a better life, but her reasoning demonstrates how sinister this film is because she says when she's explaining to her husband, Alan, who, who wants to turn the money into the police, obviously he said, who, whoever did this is going to be looking for it. This kind of thing is going to come back to haunt us. She says, I grew up poor. And then she clarifies the statement, not poor, middle-class poor. We had things, but we couldn't keep up with the Joneses. That is an interesting way to view pain. The fact that you have what you need, but it's not enough to keep up with the reputation that you're trying to portray. And Public, I think that's fascinating. I think that's well, a fascinating look at culture. To a degree, that was one of the themes of
0: movies, especially film noir in the 40s and 50s. During the war, of course, there's a lot of deprivation. But after the war, there are certain problems with the economy. But basically, everybody's working to get the economy going. The middle class just booms. But at the same time, it's a limited boom. To a certain degree, you can only go so far. So you have this American dream that you can do anything and get anywhere. But in reality, you can only get so far. And as the husband says, well, I've given you everything you wanted. And she says, well, you've given it to me on installments. Mm -hmm. We don't own any of it. It's a very precarious position to be in. But you're very right. That's a very astute look into the film. And what drives a lot of the characters in these film noir movies, this middle class existence that people aren't satisfied with, and they find boring and unfulfilling. I first saw the movie every year. The American Cinematheque at the Egyptian here in Los Angeles has what is called their Film Noir Week, where they show Film Noir. And I love Film Noir. I'm a big fan. There are people who are much bigger fans than I am, but we can be kind of a weird breed when it comes to what movies we watch and why we enjoy films. And this was one of the films that they showed. It was a restored print, though the one you find on YouTube isn't the restored one, but it was a restored print. And most people had not seen of it most people really weren't that familiar with it and then you just watch this character this Elizabeth Scott character who will do anything to keep this money anything and it's just not that she'll do anything she's actually very brilliant the plan
1: She, she and she does it relatively effortlessly you get a great scene when the Danny character the guy the money belongs to he, Dan he, Duryea, he, yeah. he pursues her and eventually she asks him to get some poison to kill somebody else and it's not in his blood it's not in his DNA to do this it drives him to drink, he starts to get shaky. You can tell it's not in his character. He comes back from securing that and lays out a conversation that the guy that sold it to him had where he said, you're not like the kind of guys that come in here. You don't look like a killer. And he says to her, to Jane, is it Jane?
0: Jane Palmer, yeah. Yeah,
1: he says to Jane, I wonder what he would have said had you gone in there. It points to a darkness that existed prior to the money. It existed in her. It was just this monster that was waiting for the right opportunity to reveal itself. The same idea that true characters revealed when somebody's not getting what they want, and everybody who's getting what they want is kind and nice let's find out who you really are when things aren't going your way I think this movie's about that in a way where she feels like somebody's trying to rob her of an opportunity she'll stop at nothing individuals lives none of that matter anymore history relationships none of that matters anymore when she's not getting what she wants so it depicts the monster within us all I think that some of us unfortunately have the opportunity to show and some don't to confront and some don't I see why film noir is an attraction I should dive out of the Dumb and Dumber and Grinch pool and into these luxurious waters. There's a lot of richness there.
0: Oh, yes. You'll see a lot of people who will do anything to get what they want and poor schmucks who will go along with it. I mean, Dan Duryea, here he is. He's the first bad guy. He's the one who got this money or is getting this money by nefarious means. We find out how he got the money or how he got the person to give him the money. So he's the original bad guy in this. But it finally gets to the point where he's going, I want you out of my life. You're so out of my league. I can't possibly keep up with how bad you are. You feel so sorry for him. Right. Because he got in so over his head. One who originally was threatening her and would slap her
1: around. Right. Um, But there's that too. I mean, let's not forget that it's a little shocking for me to not have spent a lot of time watching. I've seen a few, but I haven't seen a lot of movies from the 40s, 50s. To see the objectification of women, how Mm -hmm. every single man that's spoke to this woman instantaneously turned on some kind of sexual sort of a sexual connotation to their tone. And she slipped into this sort of sexual prey, manipulating men with her sexual prowess. It was everywhere. And how easily these people would push past her and walk inside, let themselves in, dominate a room, dominate her the way that Danny slapped her around to try and show her who's boss. And as he said, reminder of what world she just stepped into, grab her and kiss her the way that she relented. It still exists widely these days. Let's not fool ourselves. But It's not as politically correct. So we're not going to glorify it in films. It'll be vilified if we depict this in a film today. I was shocked by that. So he's not as pure unless that culture, it was such that that was, was that how things were so accepted that you could watch that movie, both men and women and think like, oh, that hunk, he's being victimized right now because she has his money and he's just trying to get it back as he grabs her and rape kisses her and then slaps her around on his way out.
0: No, no, at that point, you think he's a horrible person and he is. Yes. It's just that he doesn't realize that he's more than met his match. So much right. though at the end, you find yourself, whether you want to or not, unconsciously suddenly sympathizing with him because he walked into the spider's web and he can't blame anybody but himself, but you're still, well, sorry. But you do bring up an interesting issue about women, and this was the 40s and 50s. Once World War II stopped and they didn't want women in the workplace anymore, and the men were coming home. I mean, during World War II, you wanted women in the workplace. they the ones doing the work. They were earning the paychecks. They were running the house. They didn't actually even need men, period. So the portrayal of women in movies weren't necessarily quite so negative because women were very strong. Women were very independent. Once World War II ended, you didn't want that anymore. So now you have to you do something about that. So you have these femme fatales who are just sexual creatures who will manipulate men, will do anything to get what they want, and will seduce men. So these are a lot of the leading ladies at the time, roles that women wouldn't necessarily play before this, wouldn't play them now. They also become much more neurotic. Any woman that's trying to do a man's job or is trying to be as strong as the man becomes much, much, much more neurotic mm. in the late 50s. So in many ways, yes, this was socially acceptable. Slap around a woman. Well, she's trying to be a man. So yeah, cut her down to size. It's shocking. You're not supposed to, I think, be on Dan Duryea's side. I think you feel more sorry for Elizabeth Scott. But that's because you haven't quite seen just how far Elizabeth Scott will
1: go. How much of this do you think was those with an agenda using this medium to reinforce this idea that a woman should know her place versus this is something that's just so culturally prevalent that it seeps into this medium as something maybe not completely socially acceptable but just a, a clear picture of what is?
0: Well, it's probably a great deal of both. Certainly, at that time, the studio still had all the major control of what movies went out. So they would determine what the portrayal of women was going to be. So they would make movies based on that, or they would make want changes made in the movies to accommodate a more 1950s post-war view of women, of trying to get women back in the home, or if not, show how neurotic they are and how unequipped they are to be the equal of men. At the same time, if you you're going to write, write mystery novels. If you're going to write film noir and you have female leads, they're much more interesting than the good girls. Mm. I mean, you have the sister who lives across the hall. She's very nice. She's not nearly as interesting as Elizabeth Scott.
1: Yeah, but this is true for any film or story. I mean, the conflict is what it's we, true for men we, as well. What yeah. we look for, right? Yeah.
0: So you also get caught up in that. If you have bad people, well, you know, the women are bad people too, and the bad people are much more interesting. The other thing you have happened during this period is women also become more, I don't want to say victims, but there's a rise in what's called women in danger films. Women who either become involved with a man or get married to a man, and they think he's one thing and he turns out to be another. So now you have women being victimized as well and not totally in control of what's going in their life either. and sometimes it's also based on the neurosis of women. But generally, the most popular characters of this period today, not necessarily at the time, but today, are the film noir film fatales. There's nothing like Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indignity. Mm. She is one of the great femme fatales of all time. And you also have that in The Maltese Falcon, or Out of the Past, Murder, My Sweet, just these really, really evil women. But, you know, this does date back to the Bible. All femme fatales are based on Adam and Eve. And
1: it just grows. That was the first note that I took while watching this was, this, this is the Adam and Eve archetype. I find that interesting because I feel like, not that I've thought about making that kind of movie, but I think if we even wanted to make an Adam and Eve type of movie these days, it wouldn't go over well because it's, women are were sort of expected, in and, and, and rightly so, but should, should be elevated in storytelling and no longer want to be looked at as the, the genesis of men's problems.
0: Right. Even at that time, Barbara Stanwyck did not want to do Devil Identity because she didn't know if she wanted to play that evil a character and they convinced her to do it and of course she got raves and an Oscar nomination and it's considered one of her greatest productions. I can't remember lately the last film, Fatal, in a movie that I've seen that was really successful. I'm sure there are and my mind has a hard time remembering recent movies and older ones. But certainly when The Last Seduction and Body Heat are two of the great film
1: fatales of like the 80s and 90s with the big difference
0: is they get away with it in the 40s and 50s she can never get away with it
1: the movie code i was on the edge of my seat waiting to see if she got away with it i wasn't sure how they would in the 40s would handle that you know i, I like a, a happy ending i feel like even if the protagonist is wicked you'd like to see justice prevail and i was relieved that she went over the edge of that balcony and, and then at, the good girl
0: gets done to so right
1: i don't know today uh, maybe it would be more of a tragedy
0: it's hard to say certainly one of the most enjoyable films about femme fatales also from the period of the last Seduction, is Bound with Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon, where oh, you actually yeah. okay. Okay. are on their side the whole time because they're also victims of the men in their lives, and they get away with it. And it's one of the few where you're happy they get away with it. The Wachowski brothers, yeah. Yes, yeah, The Last Seduction and Body, you sort of admire that they get away with it, but you're not happy that they get away with it because you do feel sorry for the poor sap who has to take the fall. Right. What would you do if you found the money?
1: <laughs> oh, Howard. You know, I found a wallet when I was a kid in a shopping mall. It was sitting on a bench. It had a couple hundred bucks in it, like a bunch of 20s. Somebody's walking around money, and I turned it in. So, you know, I don't know. I'd like to think that I haven't been so jaded that if somebody dropped $2 million in my backseat, I'd... I'll say this. People may not be familiar with my work as producer, writer, director, because, you know, only in the last four or five years have I that become the emphasis. But, uh, you know, I've done okay with the films that I've produced. And I've had opportunities around people with a lot of money to make more by giving them what they want, you know, whether that's like sex or attention or whatever it is. And I've said no, and I've lost a lot because of that. I've had, you know, people with a lot of money will turn on you if you don't give them what they want. They don't just walk away or leave you alone, you get punished for it. So I don't know. I've lost my $2 million briefcase before because of that. So I'd like to think that I would turn it in, but I don't know, man. If somebody throws it in my windows or driving by, I don't know, maybe you feel like you you can get away with it. I, I might feel like her.
0: I think I would actually turn it in, but not for
1: altruistic reasons.
0: I've just seen too many movies, and I just know they're going to find you.
1: You know, but that's the thing. You know, I look at movies as an escape because I crave the kind of magic in reality that I know exists, but we're missing it these days. And part of that is because of our own greed and lust, thirst for power and vengeance. I look around, and it's hard to feel hopeful of what we can become because people get away with murder every day right, on grand scales, Entire Entire societies are built upon processes, institutions that get away with murder, and nobody can do anything about it. I don't know. I, you say that, but no, I feel like if somebody threw it in the back of my car, I'd probably be just fine walking around with it. To me, it's not a question of whether or not I would fear for my safety because I decided to keep it. It's literally just an ethical question of whether or not I feel like it's it's right. I don't think it would be right to keep it because you don't know where that money comes from. And I believe that right. anything, anything ill gotten is going to carry with it some curse, some karmic curse. So I don't think that's how we should acquire wealth. But that is, for me, it's that. I think if you wanted it though, Howard, I think you could walk away scot-free and nobody would be coming for you because of this time that we live in. It's awful. People get right. away with murder. That's my take on it.
0: And you certainly <laughs> might be right. I certainly could use money like that now. Oh That's yeah. Sure. Too late for tears is not considered first tier film noir that goes for movies like the Maltese Falcon, Double Indemnity*, The Big Sleep, Out of the Past, Murder My Sweet*. It's not even quite second tier like Scarlet Street and Woman in the Window. I think most people would put it at third tier, but it has two things that would make any film noir person want to watch it, and that is Lisbeth Scott and Dan Duryea. Any film noir person, if Lisbeth Scott is in a movie, they have to watch it. If Dan Duryea Murray is in a movie. They have to watch it. And there are a series of actors like that. There's Marie Windsor and Elisha Cook Jr., Peter Lorre, Sidney Greenstreet, the supporting characters, the ones who don't usually have leads. That doesn't matter if they're in a movie. It's a film noir movie. You've just got to see it. And film noir people will watch movies. They're sort of like comic book people. Right. The movie doesn't have to be good. As long as it's film noir, we'll watch it. And we'll find something about it that we like. It could be 10 seconds. Right. I, was like, I think Dandere is one of our more underrated actors. He always gave excellent performances. He only has leads in a few films in B-movies, but he is often the saving grace of a movie. I'm not as big a fan of Elizabeth Scott. For some reason, her voice tends to get on my nerves, and I was never convinced she was that great of an actor, but she really, really commits herself to this role, and she just takes it and she runs with it as if her life was depending on it. Right. That's what gives this movie, makes it so entertaining. Some further notes about the movie. For those who might recognize Don DeFore, who played Don Blake and Blanchard, the one who comes in halfway through claiming to be Arthur Kennedy, Ellen Palmer's old war buddy, people might recognize him as the first Mr. B in the television series Hazel. Byron Haskin, who directed, he started out working at special effects, so he's also known oh, for movies, War of the Worlds, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, First Men in the Moon, and movies like that. He also did another third-tier film noir called called I Walk Alone with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas and Elizabeth Scott.
1: Seems underutilized for this film, for that kind of mind. The special effects background for a film like this seems like an unusual choice. You know, this was pretty straightforward cinematography. It is.
0: He did start out not doing these special effects movies, so he did work on special effects. I Walk Alone came before this one. And then, yeah, he got into the more sci-fi and the more special effects movies. The author, Roy Higgins, was the one who created the television series The Fugitive and the Rockford Files. Is there anything else you might want to
1: add about the movie? I was riveted. You know, I just enjoyed it and was pleasantly surprised and riveted by the sinister nature of these characters. I think we look back and think of, I'll speak for myself, I look back and I think of the 40s and 50s as this very vanilla, Stepford Wife kind of uh, era. And, you know, we get Mad Men that kind of uses media to show us something a little different. But, you know, you just look back and you think like, oh, that was the idyllic world that we all sort of would be nice to find such a simple... Full time and place. And you watch this, you realize, like clearly, there's complexity to these characters just like we experience today. So we're no different. And it was a fresh reminder of that.
0: Film noir at the time, the vast majority of film noir were B movies. So they weren't necessarily huge, big, successful movies at the box office. They were the second bills of larger movies, or you'd go see them at second run theaters. It was only actually in many ways until the 70s and 80s that people started looking back at film noir and it became really, really popular. I think you gave one of the reasons now. It gives a very different perspective on 1950s America and suburbia and middle class existence. It wasn't necessarily everything that we thought it was right okay good (laughs) so with that let's start closing out and i did ask you to choose a film or two that you might recommend that would go along with your choice
1: sure yeah so i think if i were to pick some complimentary films for this genre i would say it's not fair again it's cheating because it's in the same family but something about mary characters continually being thrust into desperate and unusual circumstances that just continue to elevate the comedy so i think that does it really well and the hangover i I think if if the hangover and something about mary kind of had a baby. It might be a little like Dumb and Dumber, but the ineptitude of some of these characters <laughs> and trying to wade through a world that's much darker than they are. Their naivety sort of keeping them afloat somehow. You know, a way that we enjoy that.
0: Great. For me, the first one I will recommend is a movie called Shallow Grave. This was Danny Boyle's first feature, and it concerns three roommates looking for a fourth. A man applies and becomes a roommate, and then dies. And in his possession, they find a suitcase packed with money, and they decide to keep it. The other one is a simple plan with Sam Raimi in which a small plane crash lands in this small town area and two brothers and a friend discover on the plane a cache of money and then of course people come looking for the money. Right. So what is next for you? What should we be looking for?
1: Well I'll be heading back whenever the world opens up and Canada opens up I'll be heading back to uh, film season 3 of Titans which is on the DC Universe in the States, internationally Netflix. I've enjoyed my time on that and I just recently sold the film, my directorial debut, called Cicada 3301. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a dark comedy adventure about the real secret society, Cicada 3301. For years, they've been hosting what you can describe as global online scavenger hunts for recruiting super geniuses. The winners of these games you know, disappear and are never really heard from again, so we don't really know who's behind Cicada 3301, precisely what they want, but they describe themselves as, as a think tank. We can guess that they are trying to move the world powers with ideas through their kind of invisible hands. It's my take, sort of a fantasy about that world. I hope to have it out later this year. No information yet on when or how it'll be released, but right, Especially now. Right, yeah, right it's a very unusual time to be distributing films, but yeah, excited to get that in the hands of the public soon.
0: Great. As for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I am a screenwriter and script consultant, so I have a Howard Kasner script consultation Facebook page. I have a blog called Rantings and Ravings where I cover topics on movies and screenwriting. I have two books of short stories on Amazon called The Starving Artist and Other Stories and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, horror, and supernatural short stories. Uh, The second edition of my screenwriting book called More Rantings and Ravings of of a Screenwriter is also available on Amazon. I'm an amateur talker. You can find those on Instagram. Previous episode of Pop Art covered American Psycho and Repulsion with my guests Tessa Markle and Carolina Alvarez of Film Regard Productions. The next episode will be on Get Out, and Up upstream color with my guest podcaster and stand-up comedian anastasia washington both movies are about mind control that's great so with that i would like to thank you very much alan for being on the show you're a great guest
1: thanks so much man absolutely i enjoyed it very much i love getting to dance around your movie mind a little bit